Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Robbie Hanna, Chair of Pediatric Hematology, Oncology, and Blood and Marrow Transplantation at Cleveland Clinic Children's, and Dr. Angelica Irwin, a medical oncologist at the Center for Personalized Genetic Healthcare at Cleveland Clinic. So welcome, Robbie. Welcome, Angelica. Thank you so much, Dale. I'm so excited and happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So maybe to start, you can tell us a little bit about your roles at Cleveland Clinic. So Angelica, maybe we'll start with you. Sure, yeah. So I'm a medical geneticist. Um, and I started at the Cleveland Clinic um, in 2014. I also have a background in internal medicine, but in genetics, we do treat all different age groups. So really, I see patients um, from infancy on um, up to adulthood. Um, and yeah, so we I do see patients with all different kinds of rare conditions, um, different rare diagnoses, and um, for um, all kinds of indications. But really, my expertise is in the area of the lysosomal storage disorders, which is what we're going to talk about today. So I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. Robbie, tell us a little bit about what you do here. So I am uh, a pediatric oncologist, and I lead the Department of Pediatric Hematology, Oncology, and Bone Marrow Transplantation. Uh, what it is so unique about BMT in pediatrics that almost 40% of it is done for non-malignant diseases, including diseases like lysosomal storage disease, few of them. And that's how I really developed this interest in many of the genetic diseases that they are lifelong and they can really severely affect both the patient health and their quality of life. And that's how I came to interact with Dr. Erwin and uh, so happy to be here today to talk about uh, lysosomal storage disease. Excellent. So we have a uh, somewhat diverse group that might be listening. So lys- lysosomal storage diseases, what exactly are we talking about? Give us some examples of, of these uh, disorders. Robbie, maybe I'll, I'll have you cover that. Uh, I think that's fantastic question because it is really a heterogeneous group of diseases. Uh, think of these lysosomes as the enzymes that they are inside the cells. They are the digestive system of our cells. They help to break down proteins, fats, and if there is deficiency in them, this substrate, either protein or fats or polysaccharides, will accumulate in the different cells, either uh, bone, brain, heart, and different organs. And it can lead to really very variable manifestation that some of them can be very severe and it affect the life and they can die quickly. Some of them can be more progressive and late onset that they can be only seen in adulthood. And there is more than 50 types of diseases and there is always a new development of this discovery of metabolites and metabolism diseases. Uh, I usually kind of really interact with the one that they are the more severe and they start earlier in life in either childhood and I'm so excited also that our healthcare system, states, has paid attention to the prognosis of this disease and that some of them can be uh, potentially cured. So few of them are actually are incorporated into the newborn screening for pediatrician and others that they may see some of that tests on this uh, 
simple tests that they do on the prick of from the fingers or the health that they could come a couple of weeks later, it will show maybe that there is a risk for developing mucopolysaccharides or Crabbe or atrium leukodystrophy. Those are three of the very severe diseases that if we could diagnose them early, probably could offer them some life-saving therapy. And that's the importance of why we need to do that in the newborn screening. And I hope that the whole United States soon would be screened for many of these diseases. Give us an idea for perspective. Um, how prevalent are these? How, how many how many patients are affected um, by these diseases? So, Robbie, I'm going to let you take that one, and then we'll talk about the program with Dr. Irwin. So it is really very rare diseases, and I think collectively all of these rares will lead to seeing probably, depending on where the size of the center that you practice, it could be, it will be still few. But speaking of hematologists, actually, I will tell you that there was a patient who was come to us frequently as being diagnosed as a chronic ITP, thrombocytopenia, and she turned to be a Gaucher disease so, because this patient will have these cells affect the bone marrow and it will lead to less production and their spleen will be big too. So she was treated for many years as a chronic ITP with a different biologics and steroid and others that by checking the enzymes, we quickly diagnose her and we were able to treat her and help her. We have a different patient with Neiman Pick. They are very rare, one per million, but collectively all of these diseases together, it would really lead to probably seeing a few patients every year here and there collectively. I think it's going to depend on the big, how big is the center, but especially for a hematologist or even an oncologist who may see a huge liver or spleen, I think it's important to think about this lysosomal storage disease that could mimic with the hepatosplenomegaly and some other hematological manifestation. So Angelica is a medical geneticist. How did you get interested in liposomal storage disorders? And, and, and tell us a little bit about the program. Sure, yeah. So um, all of those disorders are hereditary and genetic conditions, and that's where the geneticist comes in. We um, we usually see those patients um, uh, when there is either suspicion or if they have already been diagnosed um, by uh, analysis specialist to often to confirm the diagnosis either via biochemical or molecular testing. Um, and then also to make sure that we educate the family about recurrence risk or identify additional family members. Almost all of those conditions have recessive inheritance, so we often don't see a family history. But then there are a few that have excellent inheritance, and so we may detect other family members, either a parent or a sibling or other family members in those excellent um, disorders who also require treatment and medical management. And so I got interested um, during fellowship because I um, did my, my genetics training at a large lysosomal or at a center where there was a large lysosomal disease program. And so I really was exposed to a broad variety of these lysosomal storage disorders. And what really fascinated me is that there is treatment, at least for some of those disorders. And so um, uh, we can really help the patient, if, especially if we identify them early and diagnose them early. And um, you also don't just see the patient one time, which often is the case in genetics. We diagnose them and then often there's nothing else to do. And so then they kind of go on and um, are followed by other spe specialists. But in, in those lysosomal storage disorders, we really do follow them long, a longer time and build this very close patient-physician connection. 
And so that really fascinated me and I really enjoyed working with the patients. And so when I started at the Cleveland Clinic, <clears throat> I took on the patients within the, who were already followed in the department um, who had lysosomal storage disorders. And then in a pretty short period of time, I um, grew the program or grew that patient population through outside referrals, through the newborn screen that was implemented in Ohio. Um, and as um, Robbie mentioned, the while the individual disease may be rare, the collective is actually not that rare. And so we do find um, a good number of patients every year who are newly diagnosed. And so these, all of these disorders are um, multisystemic disorders. So without exception, every single disorder affects multiple different organ systems. And so those patients have a multitude of medical needs. Um, and they are all of them are followed by several specialists. And I I noticed that whenever a patient was newly diagnosed, it was always in top of the new diagnosis a burden for the patient to identify a subspecialist in whatever disease area they needed care for, who had expertise um, in their rare disorder. And so, after having worked with these patients for a while, I um, formed pretty close connections with other subspecialists at the Cleveland Clinic who had already patients with lysosomal storage disorders that they were following and who had expertise in the area, such as Ravi. Um, and so at some point I decided, or we decided to just pull this group of specialists together and form the lysosomal storage disease program. Um, and this way, newly diagnosed patients um, can be referred to subspecialists within our within our team. Um, and this really ensures that, first of all, the patient um, the patient is referred to as a specialist who is familiar with their rare disorder and can provide the up-to-date, most up-to-date management. And it also, I think, improves their health care because there is very good communication between us um, lysosomal storage disease experts. Um, and that takes off the burden of the patient to have to make sure that all of their physicians are on the same page because we really communicate with each other. Especially when we have, um, and just as an example, we have um, we're following <clears throat> some patients with with very with um, a rare storage disease, which is called mucopolysaccharidosis, and you know they have um, neurologic involvement. They needed an MRI of the brain at the same time they need an MRI of the spine. They also needed dental work, and so we really worked hard together to make sure that sedation was only had only to be done once and um all of those the imaging as well as the um dental work and whatever else done could be done at the same time and so i think it's it's extremely important to improve or optimize those patients health care or in medical care um well as we're working together as a group so it's really important to to optimize to work together as a group to optimize these patients medical care now, in terms of working together, um, certainly you have a collection of specialists at the clinic that you're working with. Um, what does that look like in terms of, of sort of collaboration with community providers? Because as a rare disease, I can imagine that a lot of patients come from a distance. Um, how, how does that collaboration work? I think that's an excellent question because you're right. Um, we do have patients who come from, from pretty far away sometimes. Um, and again, here we have, as a group, we have the advantage of trying to coordinate their appointments to try to coordinate um, their care so they don't have to drive it back and forth multiple times. We really try to um, fit all of their appointments or as many as possible, you know, in their one visit. Um, and sometimes they only have to come up once per year and we do all of their all of their appointments at that time. Sometimes it's, you know, more often depending on 
what kind of disorder and what what is needed. Um, we also reach out and we also work closely with community providers and patients who need ongoing treatment. Um, and so for patients who are close to the Cleveland Clinic, it is a little bit easier because um, Dr. Hanna is, is doing infusions and, um, and other treatments in his infusion center. And so those are treated on site. But then if a patient lives three hours away, we don't want them to have to drive three hours every other week to come and get treatment. So we do work closely also with community providers to um, um, either enable that they get or make sure that they get their infusions and their treatment locally. Or sometimes we have patients in home infusions, but they always have to start in a, in a hospital setting when they start on treatments. So I think it's I think having this this core group at the Cleveland Clinic um, that can take care of all of the subspecialty needs is very important. And I think having that close connection to their community providers is is another is another important part of their medical care. And we really do try to work with, with them very closely. So, Robbie, as uh, sort of a, a programmatic, uh, big picture thought, how have you been able to leverage virtual second opinions and telemedicine and things like that into managing these patients? It has been really very helpful. I think we, if you put the patient at the center of the care, and going back to your question about collaboration with the community, we have to work with the community. And number one, task for us, I feel it is actually increasing awareness and education. And we just recently have a patient where we got really a compassionate use for a new enzyme therapy for them. We had to work with the pediatrician to be able to get some of the screening, some of the tests done locally, and to really educate the physicians about that. Because the family lives three hours. Those are very rare. They don't all live in Northeast Ohio. And we did as much as possible, and we incorporated that in our evaluation with the IND, that they will allow us to do virtual visits for really the screening and some of the follow-up. Unfortunately, I wish we could have done more of the enzyme therapy even there, but I think at this moment at the early phases, some therapies they would require to come, uh, and then we work with them Hopefully later, as Dr. Erwin mentioned, we have patients now that they are on home infusion. So we work with different uh, home care services to educate them about not only pediatrics, but also this rare diseases, this rare enzymes. And that's where I feel that the benefit of having the program, it becomes a resource for the community to educate and to help address any problem and learn from each other. Because... Sometimes we hear from what nephrologists were able to do or others that could help us even as a hematology. And I wear one of the hat is the medical director of our infusion. So it helped us to even learn new ways to be able to deliver the care to the patient instead of just trying to make that a burden for them. Because this is lifelong diseases and we really have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Dr. Irwin, when you think about awareness, um, how, how closely do you work with patient support groups and advocacy groups for these rare diseases? I think we have to work very closely with them. Sometimes, obviously, we have to keep up the boundaries between pharmaceutical companies and patient advocacy groups and, and, and the treating physicians. But I think overall in these rare diseases, we have to work closely together. You know, I participate in patient outreach events. Um, I speak to patient groups. I also do um, a physician um, education 
to really make sure that we don't forget about those rare diseases, that we raise awareness, and that um, the physicians who are often the ones to see those patients first, because I'm not the one who sees the patients first. Usually they're seen by somebody like a hepatologist because they have enlarged liver or by a hematologist because they have very low platelet counts. And so we really have to make sure that um, we continue raising awareness, educating so that the physicians who are the first contact with the patient, that they have these rare disorders on their screen and, and that they include those in their differential diagnosis. And so, yeah, we, we do work closely together with the goal to diagnose patients early so that we can reach our goal and treat them, get them on treatment early if treatment is available. And I guess in terms of treatments, uh, Robbie, you mentioned bone marrow transplants. Tell me a little bit about that and what kind of diseases might be best applicable for that patient selection? You know, that's that's always seems to be a big issue with um, transplants. And it sounds like sometimes these patients might have a lot of multi-system problems. So how do you address a, a transplant in a pretty complex patient like this? Excellent question. And I think that's really uh, is a challenging because uh, luckily now we are in a different situation than 20 years ago, to be honest, when first bone marrow transplant was offered for patients with Hurler syndrome, which is a mucopolysaccharide type 1. So Hurler disease is really the prime example of a disease that it will benefit from bone marrow transplant because the enzyme deficiency will lead to increase in the substrate uh, and uh, that will precipitate in the different cells, including the bones, including the heart. It will lead to heart defect, mitral valve or other also. And the longer you go without therapy, there is more effect on these organs, especially also the brain. So it is critical to diagnose early because the bone marrow transplant these hematopoietic cells have the ability to produce this enzyme and prevent any further damage, but it doesn't go back in that time. It will not go back and correct what it is that damage has happened and occurred to either the brain or the heart or others. So that's the benefit of really, and there has been studies to show, if you do bone marrow transplant in the first year of life, so infants, we are talking about them, the outcome especially from cognitive, it is much better compared if you do a bone marrow transplant for them later as they are toddler, which is what has been in the past because there was a delay in diagnosis. And there are a few other diseases like adrenaline that sometimes doesn't manifest until a little bit later. And when they are symptomatic, unfortunately, the damage has happened at so much to the brain that even if you do bone marrow transplant, you are not going to help prevent any further progressing. So it is important to really back to your question about how do we make that decision? That's back to the benefit of having a program. So we usually have our neurologist make an assessment if that neurocognitive is at a stage. We have neuropsych testing. We will have even sometimes bioethics involved if we really sometimes we feel the parents are pushing and we're trying to weigh that. Is there true benefit or if this is going to be a futile care? But I think with the newborn screen, hopefully we are going to detect more earlier patients and be able to offer them bone marrow transplant. And I do hope really that the therapy is going to continue to evolve and we are excited also one of the benefits of having a program. We could attract pharma to be able to open studies here. So we are proud that we are able to offer many enzyme therapies that they are FDA approved or they are in research phases including now an enzyme therapy for patients with Hunter disease where we are injecting it in the 
spine through a pump to see if we could overcome the neurocognitive because this enzyme, they are big protein, they don't cross the blood-brain barrier, so we're trying to do inject them directly and see if we could have and achieve really reasonable outcome that could lead to approval of this medication. So that's the other benefit of really having a big center like us. Excellent. So what's uh, what's exciting on the horizon? What what are you excited about in the field? What are the, the areas of progress that you're enthused about? And Dr. Irwin, we'll start with you. So as, as Robbie mentioned, there is there is ongoing development um, uh, with respect to treatment modalities, treatment approaches. And so we already have enzyme replacement therapy for some of those disorders. Um, they are not perfect. There are still um, options under development that hopefully maybe will cross the blood brain barrier or will, you know, will get better access to the organs where they where they need to where they need to get to. So it's exciting that there is still ongoing um, development in the area of enzyme replacement therapy. There are also um, substrate reduction therapy approaches where we often have an oral treatment av available or where not often we have only a few of those available, but there is more in in development. So hopefully we'll see more development in that area. Bone marrow transplant um, is also looked into for other disorders. And then I think most exciting is really the gene therapy approach that is under development for a number of those lysosomal storage disorders. Most of them are in the early phases of clinical trials. So phase one, um, phase two, there are some phase three trials that are coming up now or that are, have just been started. So I'm really curious and excited to see those results and to see if we can use those for, for our patients, because I think that that is where we will see the most impact um, on, on patients' quality of life and also longevity. Looks like Dr. Han is uh, agreeing with that. Any other areas of enthusiasm for you? I just want to expand on the gene therapy. I think it is really uh, exciting that the technology has advanced uh, and we are using ability to use the stem cell from the patient themselves and then correct the gene using newer technology like a CRISPR or earlier studies that they were actually using and gene addition using a lentiviral to deliver the normal gene. It is still, I would say, uh, suboptimal because it relies on the fact that we have to give some chemotherapy to be able to create enough space in the bone marrow to get the new cells to engraft and produce. But there are really ongoing uh, trials and uh, still are in a preclinical that they will avoid the fact to give chemotherapy. There are studies for some other disease that could be just giving the correct gene and they can, using a higher doses of the lentiviral or adenovector that could deliver the enzyme then to the liver, so without the need also for chemotherapy. So it's exciting because I wanted to remind that this is really long life and if we could find out that a drug that it is living drug that could continue to produce at high level of this enzymes without having the fact that they need to come so frequently weekly or every other week for infusion and achieve higher level that would really make a big big difference because even that bone transplant can help it is not without side effect i as a transplanter as i have seen a lot of side effect when we use a different person, that could cause some other complication like graft versus host disease, uh, to name the least. And we don't want to switch a disease with other. And having your own cells to be the donor and correct them, that would be the ultimate goal. That's great. 
Well, Dr. Irwin, Dr. Hanna, I appreciate uh, all your insights on this uh, topic and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. To make a direct online referral to our Tossig Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon. Thank you.